If you appreciated listening to this podcast and are considering to donate some money to a nonprofit organization this year, I'd like you to consider donating to the Sangre de Cristo Seminary through the Spirit Campaign this year, starting November 15th through December 31st. Every donation you give up to $1,000 will be matched by generous contributors through the Wet Mountain Valley Community Foundation. If you are interested, the link is in the show notes. Any contribution that you give will be greatly appreciated. Thinking about a homiletical idea, ask yourself, who are you? Carbonated water, caramel (laughs) collar, aspartame, (laughs) phosphoric acid. Submit your exegetical idea to three developmental questions. Start the recording device. Alright, well welcome to another episode of Practically Theologians Podcast. Uh, Today we are continuing our conversation on what biblical preaching is. This is the third episode in that series. Uh, Currently, we are in uh, Andrew's kitchen, uh, lovely yellow walls surrounding us and beautiful mountains in the background. And with us today we have on our my left. Uh, I'm Josh. Oh, that's you. Okay. And Jeremy's. And then on my right, somewhere in Jeremy. <laughs> okay, and then on Jeremy's right, <laughs> I'm Andrew. Okay. <laughs> and we are again continuing our conversation on biblical preaching. If you care to see all the ten stages of biblical preaching, that can be found in the podcast notes uh, on show notes. I don't even know how. Do you, where do you get to that? You press a button. Well, if you go to the show notes, they're there. But you can go to our website, practicallytheologians.org, and you will see all of our episodes there. If you click on an episode, you'll see show notes below, and uh, that's it. That's where they are. Perfect. If you scroll down too far and see our review, then you've probably gone too far. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't look at any of our reviews. By the way, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Only if you're going to give us five stars and an excellent review. If you're not, I mean, we'll take four stars too, but nothing under three. Either five or zero. <laughs> if you can do zero. <laughs> I don't think you can. You can do one. Anyway, this is not important. We're going to be talking about the uh, stages four to six today. Uh, the four stages that we're talking about again on biblical preaching. Stage four uh, is submitting your exegetical idea to three developmental questions, which are, is it true? What difference does it make? What does it mean? Stage five, in light of the audience's uh, knowledge and experience, think through your exegetical idea and state it in the most exact, memorable sentence as possible. And stage six, determine the purpose of this sermon. So we're going to spend a lot of time on stage four. Uh, Let's try to just jump into that. Submitting your exegetical idea through three developmental questions. Uh, So the first question we ask ourselves, is it true? How do you go about approaching uh, this stage that we're talking about? Well, first of all, it seems like before you even get to these questions, we might want to talk about why to ask the questions. And and Robinson says it's it's to bring life to the sermon, how to bring life to the sermon. And so then he gets into the questions Hmm. having to do with explaining something, proving something, and um, giving people application or a reason why to believe it or what what's the, what difference does it make to me mm-hmm. so all right there you go so the question is coming from the people in the audience so when we're developing these these questions and, and looking at our exegetical idea the person in the audience is asking what does this mean so so how do we go about explaining it well i would say that the uh basic way of doing that is giving a verse by verse breakdown of the text highlighting the significant portions of the text Describing in clear language what it means, to, what it means, and um, yeah, just explaining that to your uh, congregation. Okay. So, co- go ahead. Well, so we're talking about preparing the sermon right here, and so you have an imaginary congregation in your head asking these questions. So also, it's important to, to know your your congregation and uh, kind of understand what kind of questions they might be asking as to what does this mean as you say it in your sermon. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a very important thing is uh, actually asking that question from the pulpit. I have found that incredibly helpful. It gets people's Mm -hmm. attention. 
their ears perk up when they hear a question. Yeah, and one thing I noticed that you do, Jeremy, when you have uh, taught and preached here is that you ask a question and you and you let us think about it for a few seconds. I know you've said sometimes that wasn't always intentional, but uh, whether it was or wasn't, having uh, sometimes three seconds to think over a question that you ask uh, instead of immediately getting the answer that I don't even have time to process is super helpful. Um, how about anyone else want to try to chip away at this one? Yeah, <clears throat> I think also... Last podcast, we talked about the importance of making sure that you properly exegete the passage. So I think even for someone that might not be preaching a sermon, but you're studying God's word, it's important that as you exegete the passage, your goal is to figure out what precisely does this passage say? What does it say? And once you figure out what it says, now you can go to this step and start asking yourself the questions. Well, what does that mean? If it says this... If it says that God is love, Mm -hmm. what does that mean for me as the reader or for a preacher that's preparing a sermon? What does that mean for me as a preacher and for my audience or my congregation that might be listening? Uh, So all of this that we're talking about now is anchored in the fact that we must have done the proper exegetical work up to this point so that we know what the text says. And now we're starting to bring it into today's life, right? And that's what Josh was talking about. It starts to give life to the sermon because now we're taking something that happened 2,000 years ago or further, and we're saying, now that I know what it means, how does it start to affect me today? So it seems like you're saying you're not just you're not just going up there with the information that you found and saying, here's what the text is saying in, this, in its own context with its own people. Right. Now you're making it broader by expanding it out maybe to uh, the congregation that, that's hearing it. Right. Right. So that helps us not just take something for granted that uh, that we might not understand, but we just maybe we just assume that we do. So to force ourselves to ask these questions of the text, make sure that we actually have an understanding of how it applies. So, for example, you could read in Galatians uh, that man is justified by faith and not by works. Mm-hmm. Right. You could read that. And then if you've done your exegetical work, you could know what Paul meant when he wrote that to the church in Galatia. Mm-hmm. But now we're asking, so what does that mean for me today? How does that apply to me today? So you're starting that application process. Um, and when you ask these questions, it forces you to deal with that and not just assume, oh, well, I know what that means and move on. And so that's why, you know, we've even done podcasts on um, different terms like atonement and things like that. So that we don't just assume that we know what the definition of something is. Yeah. And I just wanted to uh, bring up the exegetical idea. Nikki referred to it. What is this, what is this passage saying? And what is this passage saying about what it's saying? Mm. The answer to both of those questions is the exegetical idea. So what is it that the author in the text is saying? But we also, what Andrew was referring to is when we come up, when we come up to the final preparation of our sermon, we're applying it to the hearers now and not the people then that would be the homilytical idea. So you want, you're going to be moving from, the exegetical idea of a text, which maybe for Exodus 32 with the uh, idolatry of the golden calf episode, let's just say, <clears throat> hypothetically, I haven't really thought this out, but let's just say, because you are the people of God, you should flee idolatry. So that's the, what is this passage talking about is, is um, idolatry. And what is this passage saying about what it's talking about? Uh, you should flee idolatry, be, well, because you are the people of God, but... Um, but that is not necessarily what the homolytical idea might be, mm-hmm. depending on, it, it might be the same as the exegetical idea. So, um, so anyway, as we're talking now, these stages really develop the exegetical idea so you can get to the homolytical idea. So <clears throat> would you, uh, would you see these questions that we're asking, uh, as kind of that transition process as we get to go from the exegetical idea to the homolytical idea? Yeah, I think so. I think Robinson gets to the homiletical idea uh, in stages. Well, kind of, it, it starts to happen in stage five, and then six and seven, it moves into getting the homiletical idea. So I think it is laying the groundwork. Uh, something that I wanted to point out that you two kind of touched on is um, Andrew said, "Never don't assume, don't gloss over definitions, and assume that your congregation knows what they mean." Um, even definitions like justification and faith or idolatry. Uh, that makes me think of when I first became a Christian, I was sitting in a Bible study with a seminary student and we were reading through a book talking about justification. 
And I asked him, how does one get justified? I said, by faith. And I guess, but what does that mean? He just gave, had looked at me with a big grin on his face like it was so clear it was just justification by faith. And I left that Bible study supremely dissatisfied and confused and frustrated. So it wasn't perspicuous what the meaning was? Yes. We're going to do a podcast on perspicuous. Um, I think something else that, that might be helpful, maybe we can do a podcast sometime on how to listen to a sermon well. Uh, I think that would be helpful. But this applies, this question that we're asking, or these three questions that we're asking, uh, apply to a listener of a sermon also, because you should be asking of what the preacher is saying, what does that mean? Uh, because it's not to be taken for granted just because the preacher is saying it. It's therefore true, because Scripture says it's true, but what he's communicating might not be what the text actually means. So it's very important for a listener of a sermon, uh, or the listener of a preacher, to be aware of what is he saying, and do I know what that means? And is he explaining that? And that's why we're trying to look at it from the preaching side. Make sure you do that. And that's precisely how the sermon comes to life for the hearer. So not only is the preacher helping to put life into his sermon, but if you as a hearer are asking these questions too, you are doing work. You're working to understand and hear the sermon, which is God's word being preached to you. And it's beneficial for you too. In mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, it's something that we might take for granted the, the next question in this is that, is it true? Uh, how, do, do we have to, to prove from the text that uh, what we're saying is true or rather not do we have to, but how do we, I guess, go about doing that? The fact that what we're presenting is true and we're getting it from the text. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, I, I talked about James two uh, earlier before the podcast is we were kind of discussing uh, these questions and, where James says that we're, so you see, we're not justified by faith alone, but by, um, so you see, we're justified by works also and not by faith alone. Is that what it says? No, I forget. Now I'm on the spot. Anyway, we can get there in a minute. We have a Bible right here. But the point is, <clears throat> if you get up there and you're preaching on what James is talking about in James 2, and you say, you see, James is not using justification in the same sense as Paul. What James is saying is that Abraham was justified in saying that he had faith or his faith that he had was vindicated by his works or exhibited by his works rather than he was made right by God because of his works. Uh, you see the difference. There's a difference there in how James is using justification. Um, where is it? Was <laughs> you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There you go. That's James 2.24. 2. 24. two yeah, 224. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, so somebody in your audience, maybe, or a congregation, let's let's even call them that. Uh, the book uses the word audience and congregation kind of interchangeably sometimes, it seems. But if they are, are coming from, say, a, a Roman Catholic background, um, they're going to use that verse to say, look, you are justified by your works and your faith, see? So how do you prove that to them? You do have to know your congregation and what questions they will ask, but the Roman Catholic will probably say, is this true? And, of course, they're going to be a reforming Roman Catholic if they're sitting in your church. Let's, let's pray God uses it to open their, their uh, eyes to the truth. But what do you guys think? I think if I could use an example from uh, Robinson's book, I think this example is, is very helpful. I think it maybe supplements what you were saying or it might be another element of uh, proving that what I'm saying is true. So as a preacher... If I've done my homework and I've found the exegetical idea and I've gone through um, what it means and now I'm I'm looking to apply that to the congregation, I'm assuming that that what I'm saying is true, right? I'm assuming that because otherwise I wouldn't be saying it. Uh, I've gone through through my homework and and I'm confident that I'm preaching with boldness the Word of God. The, The the disconnect, the possible disconnect comes up when you say that to a congregation and they may wonder, how is that true for me? Well, how does, how is that true for me? Because they haven't done all the study and all the exegetical homework that we have. So here's an example that, that he uses, uh, in Romans eight twenty eight, the familiar passage, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So most people, what Robinson says is most people will greet that statement with raised eyebrows. 
So if you think about the Christian that uh, has lost a child or the Christian that's going through cancer, uh, the Christian who's, um, it says here, the Christian whose mother has just been killed in an accident, right? So you, you proclaim that truth and it's true. But the question that the congregation is going to have is, I hear you saying that, but how, how does that fit my life? Because nothing about what is happening right now seems to be good. So part of this question is, how do I help them see that in the season of life that you're in, this still holds true, and I need to help you to see that, not just dismiss it as false, or just say, or dismiss it as, I don't understand that, but help them to see, even in the midst of this, God is good. And that's why it's still true for you, no matter what your circumstance is. And it goes back to what you guys have said earlier. You need to know your congregation mm-hmm. to be able to make that connection. Mm-hmm. But not making that connection uh, is going to lead to a dead sermon. So you're talking about almost like a double layer to this question. Like, how is this true um, just in reality? And how is this, how does this fit in the lifestyle of, uh, not the lifestyle, how does this fit in our lives? How is this applied to our lives? Which, uh, I almost think that's a better question than how is this true for me? Because in our in our relativistic relativistic age, true for me has a different meaning. Um, yeah. So. Well, Jeremy, but that's not true for me. Yeah. I think no. I, I agree with your phraseology. I think that the reality is it is true for each individual. Um, they may it may you may perceive it differently, right? It's true for the person that's going through yeah. cancer. It's true for the person that just lost a loved one. But I agree, you maybe could word that differently so that it's not taken that way. How did this truth touch their lives? Yeah, there you go, perfect. So going from stating this is true, showing that it's true from scripture, and then bridging that question to the next one, is how does this truth touch your life? Would be the, I guess, the question. Uh, what difference does it make? Yeah, it's a perfect lead-in to. That question, right, Nikki? That's perfect. Go ahead. This Mr. Nikki, who's eating one of Jeremy's coconut macaroons. Yeah. I don't know if you guys can hear any chewing, but I'm done with the cookie now. They must be pretty good. I've had two. <laughs> so what difference does it make? What does that what does that mean? So as you're preparing your sermon, you're gonna ask this question. What difference does it make? We're talking about application here, mm-hmm. right? So I think one area to definitely be careful of, and this is to <clears throat> not make the application too soon or out of context. I think it's, I think it's a good thing to make an application throughout the sermon whenever it's mm-hmm. uh, applicable, but I think it's easy to read it and immediately think of an application before we understand the context and really exegete the passage as well as we ought to. So Robinson gives five questions to help arrive at what he calls the purpose of the author, which the author is, giving the text, they're, they're writing something for a reason. And so um, to arrive at that purpose is to arrive at understanding what is it that God is trying to do with this mm-hmm. text. Mm-hmm. So his five questions to arrive at that purpose. Uh, number one, are there in the text any indications of purpose, editorial comments, or interpretive statements made about events? Number two, are theological judgments made in the text? Number three, for narratives, asking if the story was given as an example or warning, and in what way, if the incident is is, uh, an exception, and what limitations should be placed on it can help with the particular difficulties that narratives present. And four, what message was intended for those to whom the revelation was originally given, and also for subsequent generations the writer knew would read it. And five, why would the Holy Spirit have included this account in Scripture? Mm. So I thought those were helpful. <clears throat> um, what, what exactly does it mean when he, uh, for number two, he is, are theological judgments made in the text? Are you talking about uh, the idea that you can approach a text with your own idea and use a text to to support your idea? Is that is that what you're saying from that question? No, I was just wondering what the question meant. Um, it was less clear than the rest of the questions, I thought. Is it um, asking the question, is it basically is it asking that, does the text in some way say whether something is right or true, or um, the actions of someone were right or true if you're reading a narrative? Mm-hmm. Would be, um, and oftentimes in Old Testament narratives, you see a, a there's not a one made outright, but one, there's one assumed there. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I've been reading a book called Preaching by the Book uh, by R. Scott Pace, and one of the 
one of the principles that he has when you're going through and studying the text is he says you need to identify the theological truth. I think that's along the same lines as what um, Robinson is talking about. And the way he summarizes that is what does this text reveal mm-hmm. about who God is? Um, so there's a theological truth there. Um, it, when we see a text that is revealing this is who God is, or this is a promise that God has made. Uh, and then as you start to wonder, so what does that mean for me? What Pace would say is uh, now you're looking at how does what is true about God begin to impact my life specifically? Right. So we go back to that question about God is good or God works out all things for good. Now we're looking at this is a true statement about God. This is a theological truth. God works out all things for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. How is this true for how is this good? How does this apply to the listener? And then you can start to explain this is how this impacts your life. It's actually comforting. Right. For someone that's going through a trial like that. Mm -hmm. When you see how this theological truth specifically touches, to use Jeremy's words, how this theological truth about God specifically touches your life individually today. And getting to the purpose using that example, you might think the purpose is why does Paul put this in here? Why is this in the book of Romans? So Mm -hmm. what's an example of why that might be in the book of Romans? What was Paul's purpose in putting that in the book of Romans? I mean, I haven't studied it all the way out, but let's just say it's to comfort the Christians mm-hmm. in Rome. And, yeah, right. and the people are currently <clears throat> suffering. Right. Uh, in, I think, 8.18, he's talking about how their sufferings are not even worthy to be compared to the uh, everlasting glory that they're going to experience in Christ. So, yeah. So that would be the purpose of the author then. Yep. And moving to, in the same question, what difference does it make then taking that and as you find the purpose and moving it to apply it to the listener of today, um, Robinson gets into that too uh, with some questions. Do you have those listed anywhere? I have them. I don't. Want me to read them? Uh, yeah, I'm very prepared. All right. <laughs> what was the communication setting in which God's word first came? What traits do modern listeners share with the original audience? Hmm. So, Rome, communication setting? Oral and written. Oral and written. Um, also persecution I mean it's communicating to people oh oh who were, okay I think I misunderstood the question um, so there was Christ, there were Christians in Rome who were being persecuted what, and then so you want to say well what traits do modern listeners share with those mm-hmm. Christians so like for what example uh Maybe suffering at work for being a Christian. Maybe you work for a <clears throat> uh, a filming studio, and they want you to film some explicit content that you're you feel convicted is not something that you should be doing, and then you get uh, I don't know laid off or uh, pressed and pressured into doing it when you're convicted that it's wrong. I mean, that's a very mild yeah. uh, example, but I I think that that's something. <laughs> In the United States of America. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to find. Well, and I don't know if it's necessarily just referring to uh, persecution, because it could be some, like, with bad medical there, I mean, it could be a regular, at those times, it could have been a regular illness. It could be wondering when God is going to uh, act in your life in a certain way. Whatever it is, God, uh, wrote Paul and Romans there saying that whatever you're in, know that you can look at that from the point of view that God is working all things for good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we could even be getting a flat tire one day when you're running late. Yeah. That's very practical. That is the suffering of this present world, which I just read from Nikki's Bible program here. <laughs> I didn't know that off the top of my head. Um, so the second question. Go ahead. You know, there are, I think there are four. How can we identify with the original audience as they heard God's word and responded or failed to respond in their situation? Three, what additional insights have we acquired about God's dealing with his people in further revelation? And I thought that was a pretty good key point. Because as I read the book, I was kind of uh, wondering about that. When, you know, the original author wrote to, say, the Israelites in Israel, let's just say. Um, and, but in one of the Peters, we, we see that they searched and then they, and they inquired as to what time and what manner these things might take place. So even the authors writing those Old Testament prophecies may not, they didn't necessarily understand exactly what they were writing about. They didn't understand 
exactly how the Messiah would come or exactly how he would um, perform his work of, of uh, atonement and bringing people into the new creation by his, by his perfect work. Mm. Um, so I thought that was a key point is in light of, of redemptive, the revelation being complete, the Holy Spirit has put everything into the Bible that's ever going to be into the Bible and the work of Christ um, and his first coming is complete and he's in heaven now as the perfect priest, king, and prophet. Um, now we read the Bible understanding that and we may understand things in a way that the Old Testament author did not understand when they wrote it to the Old Testament audience. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because as I read the book, that was one thing that kind of niggled at the back of my head is, well, we're not just simply taking what the Old Testament author was trying to convey to the Old Testament audience and trying to find his purpose there. Shouldn't we also be taking into account what the Holy Spirit intended for us today, given the whole of redemptive history in, uh, as it's placed into Revelation for us? And I think that brings an uh, important point for that third question is, the um, what difference does it make in light of the cross? Mm. Especially, I mean, even if you're preaching from the Old Testament, how does the gospel relate to this? How does this find its fulfillment in Christ? How does the gospel relate to this? Yeah. Yes. So, unless anyone has anything else to add. Um, well, there's the fourth question. The fourth one. Let's do that. <laughs> That's good. And finally, <laughs> when you discover an, an eternal truth or an abiding principle, what specific practical application does this have for me and my congregation today? So... The last point kind of brings up maybe a difficulty the preacher might have in connecting the application of something written, let's just say the golden calf. I mean, people nowadays don't regularly build physical golden calves, right? So I don't, I don't believe so. Usually not. Not in America. So how do you, how do you understand that in terms of, because we're still people. Those were people mm-hmm. back then. We're people now. People throughout history share some common traits and, and ways of sinning that aren't necessarily expressed the same way. So Yeah, but the but the idols are always still there to some extent or another. They just ex- they come out in different forms. Yep. Yeah. Um, right. so so talking about this stage, we really are trying to uh, search for clarity in the audience, trying to help the audience understand what it means. Is it true and what difference does it make to my life? And uh, one of uh, the quotes from, from Robinson was, when people leave church in a mental fog, they do so at their spiritual peril. So what we're doing, uh, maybe preaching or leading a small group, it's very important that we're not just, we're not just talking, we're not just presenting uh, great insights into what the text is saying that is just uh, good things to know, but that we're really bringing it home to the people and that they understand what it is that we were talking about uh, throughout the message or, or small group. Uh, and that it's uh, edifying to them. Uh, I think I want to go back to something that I said when we first started this step too. Uh, for the person that's just studying their Bible uh, that may not actually be preparing a message, uh, it's I think it's critical to ask these questions as part of your Bible study because I think that uh, one of the reasons that Bible study can be so hard uh, and it becomes almost like a checklist is because we come to it thinking that this is probably going to radically change my life today, or I'm looking for this to give me some sort of radical insight that I've never had before. Uh, and then it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And then we walk away and we're like, well, that was kind of a downer. And so tomorrow morning, uh, when I get up and I'm forcing myself to get back in the word, it kind of feels empty and it becomes just a, um, just an action that I'm doing because I'll feel guilty if I don't. But if you ask yourself these questions and you recognize how this passage uh, proclaims the holiness of God, And in the light of God's holiness, it exposes me as a sinner. And that points me to the cross. Mm. What that does is what what Scott Pace does. He says you're looking to provoke the faith of the listener. So as a reader of the Bible, my faith is being provoked. Uh, Paul would say my faith is being filled up or being built up because I'm recognizing I am in desperate need of a Savior in light of God's holiness. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. And that's a knowledge factor that may not totally shift my life today. But if, if I approach... Bible study with these questions and I'm running these through my mind and my Bible study is shaped by this approach, Bible study will come alive in the long run as I grow in my knowledge of who God is and I cling to the cross even more as with Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. So uh, I think that it applies to anyone who's reading Scripture. 
I guess to give an illustration that's kind of like exercising, or so I've heard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't go to your the gym and expect to be uh, completely ripped on the first day. You uh, work towards. Um, you could use it like an acquired taste for a food. That, right. that works too. A food that you really want to enjoy, but uh, you just don't like it. So you're going to acquire the taste. Kind of like I acquired a taste for black coffee. Yeah, exactly. It works that way too. sugar and yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good. That is a good illustration though. Yeah. it's it, When you put in the word, you put in the time and you look back and you're like, wow, yeah. I've grown a lot in my knowledge mm-hmm. of who God is. Yeah, so there's no further uh, questions that I'm forgetting or before I move on. Josh? With Nikki being a millennial, we're, we're fortunate that he even showed up. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we're, we're doing all right. I showed up, I think, four minutes late, which is something I don't like to do. Uh, but commitment, yeah, that's hard. That's yeah. rough. I would say four minutes late for a millennial is, like, early. So we're good. But I'm normally on time. And a few <laughs> minutes early. That's what I, tr- I strive for. <laughs> on time is late. And early is on time. Or. That is right. Or do we show up always at the exact time we're appointed to show up? Okay, time for, the, a, for a funny story. A reformed theologian <laughs> is never early okay. and never late. He pr- r- arrives precisely when, precisely when God also, to arrive. Also from the Matrix. <laughs> My great uncle was very keen on being places at least 15 minutes early, if not half an hour early, everywhere he went. So he died, and he had a funeral, and he was in the military, so they had a kind of a procession up to the where he was being buried. And... Uh, Ironically, a tree fell across his um, route, and he was five minutes late for his own funeral. <laughs> anyway, I just, that's a funny story. That is it's like morbidly funny, but that's yeah, all right. I mean, yeah, it was told at his memorial service. Oh, so all right. It's fine. <laughs> You're in the clear. Yeah. All right, so, so stage five. So in light of the audience's knowledge and experience, you got to think through your exegetical idea and state it in the most exact, memorable sentence possible. So why do you think uh, Haddon Robinson even included this as a stage? Why is it that we need to to really focus? And it seems like he's really drawing our attention to really make sure you can make the memorable, uh, maybe proposition or big idea in light of the main. Okay. Yeah, I sorry. think it's because of it. I'm, I'm just pointing at Nikki. Uh, I got distracted. I'm notes. sorry. Yeah, he is Squirrel. a millennial. <laughs> no. Josh pointed at my screen and it just. Uh, I, I was just pointing out a big part of this is in light of the audience's knowledge and experience. Yeah. So you're bringing the exegetical idea, which is where, where the author, what the author had intended, to the audience, which which is bringing you to the homiletical idea, which is what we talked about earlier. So I thought that was a big part of this stage five um, statement or a question. Yeah. Do you, th- you guys think that there's any benefit to doing the like the three P sermon, like uh, persistence, preservation, passion, something like that in your in your notes? Do you guys think that's helpful? You mean kind of giving them and um, oh, what is that term called? Um, it's not a mnemonic, is it? No, no that's not the right word. Hieroglyphics? No, not hieroglyphics. All right, let's go through the list. An acronym would be like acronym, but it's not <laughs> no, like all the same. It's word. called alliteration. Alliteration. That's what I'm yeah. for. So you're still talking about giving them alliteration. Well, if if it if it, I would say if it um, organically flows into alliteration, definitely. But if you try and bang everything into an alliteration, if I can try and say the word, <laughs> the word we talked about before, yeah, alliteration, then you could um, really make a mess. Well, I'm I'm a millennial, so I don't believe in taking things alliterately. Wait. Oh, oh, yucka, yucka, yucka. <laughs> I definitely think that a. I've come to realize how significant a uh, one statement finish, like top, topping the sermon off with one statement. This is what you're to leave with is important because you've basically just spent the last half hour to an hour giving a lot of information to people mm-hmm. who can't necessarily keep a lot in their heads. I know I can't. Yeah, this homiletical um, idea, I think, is you know, is a huge help if you can make it clear. As you're preaching that this is what you want your people to understand about what you're saying, and you're tying your points to that, and you're helping them see that really the big important thing that they're supposed to take away at the end of the day is this one idea, and then you're developing that. They're going to come away at least having what you want them to do in light of a reason. So you give them a reason, and this is what you do because of that reason. That's the idea. And that's not necessarily the fault of the preacher or the audience, but it's just the nature of of speaking. Because when you read, you can say, oh, wait a minute, I need to go back. But with teaching and speaking, you can't do that. So you need to give them that um, path to continue on. And as you're listening to a sermon, 
Sorry, I keep jumping in, don't I? This is good. Yeah, it's good stuff. I was just listening to a sermon. I, hopefully he's not listening right now. Just kidding. By uh, uh, the assistant pastor, assistant to the pastor at our church. It's preaching through Jonah. So I was listening with my ears open to hear some of these things like, does he give us the idea or the proposition, as we might call it, um, as before he preaches? And then does he tie that back to that? What, what, what? There's something funny over here. <laughs> Sorry, we can cut you, you said your ears were open. I was going to ask if your if your eyes were closed and why they would have been closed. <laughs> well, I was trying to sleep. Is there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. So anyway, um, he did give an idea, a proposition at the beginning, and he also, I think, restated it kind of at the end. But it it helps you to listen to a sermon, mm-hmm. basically. You, even if you, so, if you're, I, I mean, we're talking to you. Average Joe in the pew. That, that rhymed. So, that's good. Wow, that's good. That that's a title. That may become a tagline. That was good. <laughs> We're talking to you, Average Joe in the pew. It doesn't really work if you have a hey, church. The church we go to doesn't have pews. It's another T-shirt. So ours would be like, "We're talking to you, Average Joe in the yeah. chair." But yeah. that's all right. I like pew though. <laughs> that's good. The okay, two hundred dollars chairs sitting in a chair. This does not apply. Uh, I'm trying to think how to bring. So was there was there a reason that you had your eyes closed or now? Like, is there something at the front of the church? I was you trying were? to sleep. Uh, I didn't know there was a podcast uh, thing. I didn't know if there was something at the front of the church that you didn't want to see. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> how about yeah, they have an American flag up there, and I'm dead was set it, against that. What, what church was it? Hmm. This is my church. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, okay. No, it was. I thought you were talking about here in town. It wasn't the Lutheran okay. church. You know, I'm I'm a reformed guy okay. who, who attends a Lutheran church sometimes in town. All right. And uh, the preaching's pretty solid. The worship's pretty solid. They have this statue of a guy. I think they call his name. Let's see, Jesus, maybe? Yeah. I hope I don't offend anybody, but... It's uh, not a gold calf, though, so you're good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's like the next... Okay. No, it was my home church, which... Yeah, okay, you see. cool. Yeah, it was, that makes more sense. Yeah. Well, now I really don't know why your eyes were closed, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so with this, with this like, uh, memorable sentence that we're going for, uh, is length something that we should take in consideration? Is it, does it matter if it's perhaps like 30 words long in a proposition, a main idea, or should we try to aim for as few words as possible? I would say as few words as possible. I've been told by our uh, skilled and experienced teacher to make it in a nutshell. I think 15 words or less was the Mm -hmm. restriction. So I try and expand it. Um, I keep saying to him, well, what if my nut is a coconut? Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I think it really helps to make it as short and memorable as possible. So I, uh, I agree. And I can't even really remember my first two propositions from the first two lessons I taught. But this last one, I was very careful to keep it short. And it may not be memorable, but it was just... I remember it. Okay. Follow Jesus because he is Messiah. That's right. Boom. See? Now, that may not have within it anything impressive. I mean, I developed that out of that statement. And in fact, I would say that that proposition could have been better, for sure. But... But it was something for people to hang their heads on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like and, a peg to, to hang everything on. And it was directly from the text. So, and something that, uh, I'll go back to that book that I was talking about earlier, um, Preaching by the Book by Scott Pace. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. It's just something, <laughs> I've, been, something I've been reading through for a class. Um, and uh, what he says when you're developing this idea is that you should try to boil it down to one word or the shortest phrase possible to begin with. Hmm. And then you can expand it from there to try to make it memorable for the congregation. But what that does, so he uses the um, James 1 about trials. So if you go through that passage and you come out on the other end and you can summarize that entire passage with trials, that's what this passage is talking about. Then everything else should tie into that. And if you have a hard time tying it into that, you probably got the wrong, uh, you probably got the wrong point, right? So it doesn't have to be one word, but he would say well, like a word. word. Could be. I mean, in the proposition, you're calling people to action. Right. right. So what I'm saying is, what he would say is boil it down to that one right. word so you know what that passage, you know precisely what it's about. Now you can start to develop, how am I going to explain this main idea, this one idea to the audience or the congregation in a propositional statement? Right. Okay. Um, and then I agree with what you guys are saying. That propositional statement should be sh- short enough to be memorable. Um, I don't know if I'd put a limit on it, but just definitely something that has got kind of well, a ring to it. In the book, is it in the book where he talks about the 3 a.m. test or is it in a different book? That sounds familiar. So basically, if you wake up and there's an emergency and you answer the phone at 3 a.m. because the phone's ringing, that's why you woke up. Not you woke up first and then the phone rang. 
But anyway, <laughs> so you answer the phone and somebody tells you what's going on. At that point in the morning, you're kind of in a haze. You just woke up. You're going to want something as direct as possible said to you so that your brain can process it. That's I, I don't remember if it was in this book or if it was in uh, hmm. Christ-Centered Preaching, maybe, by Chappelle. That sounds very familiar, so I think Sorry. it might have <laughs> By Dave Chappelle. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Also not a sponsor. Sorry, Dr. Chappelle. <laughs> Chappell. uh, that sounds very familiar, and I know we read um, uh, that one, Robinson's book last year, so I'm guessing it might be that. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting that this this is like so different than what preaching used to be like like centuries ago. Now we want to get it to as little words as possible, to as small points we can possibly get it. When you listen to, you know, preachers uh, in the 1700s giving 10-point sermons and having paragraphs as a proposition, it's I, I just making a comment. I just think it's very interesting how how much uh, we have changed in our ability to listen and comprehend information. Oh, I agree. Yeah. We've changed in that ability. But I don't want to get I, too off track. I would, I would want to give some pushback to those old Puritan guys, though, and say, now, were they actually, was that right? The right way to preach a sermon? I would want to ask that question. I mean, if you look at the sermons in, in the Bible, they aren't, they're not that way. Mm-hmm. Some of Paul's writings are that way. Jeremy? That's a good question. Um, uh, not maybe it was last year. Last year, the year before, I went to a, a Banner of Truth conference on Puritan preaching, and they talked about that. They basically said that was the level of education. That was the way people were educated, and that was how they expect arguments to be made and points to be made was through exhaustive covering words we want to precise. And basically, when they explained all of that to us, we're like, "Don't preach like a Puritan to your congregation. They're not gonna. They're, they're not gonna track with you." Yeah, well, I mean, we're just accustomed to watching 90-second YouTube clips. Speak for yourself. Of cats playing the piano. Okay. Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but, anyway. I I'll watch it at least a minute in 20 seconds. <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. But uh, just for sake of time, unless anyone has anything else to add, moving on to step six, uh, which is to determine the purpose for this sermon. So what we really need to ask ourselves is, what does this mean to you? What does this mean? <laughs> it's a joke. Uh, <laughs> what do these mean? So determining the purpose. I feel like uh, I feel like it means uh, every good Bible study is followed up by the question, "What does this mean to you?" <laughs> I was saying I feel like that's the inside joke thing. Anyway, <laughs> so determining your so purpose. So chapter five, which stage six is in chapter five. The chapter is kind of as an introduction. It deals with the question, why are you preaching this sermon? Ah. Mm-hmm. Because it's Sunday and I'm a preacher. <laughs> I get paid. And I get paid. That's a bad <laughs> reason. <laughs> well, that is one reason. I mean, if you are a, a, preacher, prof- a professional no, preacher, even a pastor, <laughs> who has a responsibility, <laughs> you should work on getting a sermon prepared. Absolutely. And preaching a sermon to the people. But but if that is your end, yeah. then you clearly missed what you're supposed to be. So doing. what is a purpose? So the power of purpose. Oh no, this sounds like <laughs> just came from Robinson's book. <laughs> no, I was trying to get us back on track. So oh, okay, right. the power of the purpose of the sermon is different than the reason you're preaching the sermon. Possibly, right? Uh, so okay. I am preaching because it's Sunday, and I'm a preacher, and I'm expected to preach. But Go I can on. preach without a purpose. Well, right? the question is, why are you preaching this? to uh, these people. How about that? How the, is that? Yeah, that's yeah. better. So why? Why would you? But what's well, an example? If you're preaching through a book, it's because it's the next section of the book. <laughs> and that's the great thing about preaching through a book. <laughs> no. Because you have no. to confront no. every passage. Okay. But I think the point is, <laughs> see, if you're preaching, you're preaching to your congregation who are being shepherded and cared for by you and so your purpose (laughs) then would not be it would not be it would be related directly to who you're preaching to and what are their needs how are how is christ going to feed his sheep by his word today and these particular sheep not just his sheep in general Mm -hmm. and that would be closely tied with the exegetical truth of your sermon as well Mm -hmm. yeah it would be yeah yeah, so the purpose would be tied to 
bringing the exegetical idea and purpose to the modern audience that you're actually speaking to. And Andrew has a look on his face here. No, I'm good. (laughs) No, I think so. Part of what Robinson talks about is uh, going back to what we started this podcast with and all the way back to the uh, exegeting the passage. uh, Why did the author include this here? Helps me start to figure out. So why am I then preaching it? Why am I then preaching this message to the audience today? Right. That's all tied together. But um, when preaching, you are aimed, aiming, and I'm reading this, at changed behavior or thinking. A sermon is delivered to change the hearer in some way, which can be thought of in categories of knowledge, attitude, insight, and skill. Yeah, so that was what I was kind of contemplating there, because I read this quote from Robinson. The purpose behind each individual sermon is to secure some moral action. Yeah. I'm not sure if I agree with that. Yeah. Sentence. Well, let's expand it out to be thought of in, in categories of. I like the way you just said it. Yeah. Knowledge, attitude, yep. insight, and yep. skill. Hey, this is from the earlier version of the book too. I wonder if. Yeah, I don't know what happened when you wrote this one, but <laughs> it's a good book. But I don't. I don't agree with that statement well, at all. But what is not a moral? Like, if you're preaching a sermon, even even thinking one way about Jesus and thinking. Uh, in a way, another way about Jesus that is diametrically opposed. That's a moral yeah. action. I think what you're uh, concerned with, it would be like some kind of uh, moralistic uh, end goal. Like, this is how you should act. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if all you're doing is preaching good morals without the cross, then you know, you're being a, was a therapeutic humanistic moralist. Yeah, exactly. So, in, and actually to be clear, it looks like Robinson is actually quoting Tozer from of God and men, uh, where he said the purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action. Uh, and he says that truth, theological truth, is useless until it's obeyed. Yeah. Uh, okay. We just want to be so, careful about what we mean when we say that, maybe. Yeah. Then. Yeah. I think that yeah. probably what the point that they're getting across is, is kind of what you were saying when you defined it. Are you growing in your knowledge of who God is? Is it affecting the way you think? Uh, which <laughs> in turn affects the way you act? Uh, all of that is tied up in this is why I'm even presenting this theological truth to you, right? Because it should shape the way you think, which then in turn shapes the way you act. Um, so I think that that could probably be played out a little bit more. And as a listener, and you're listening to a sermon, you should be, uh, I mean, it's very, maybe a very helpful thing to be thinking. All right, I'm being preached to from God's word, let's assume, let's hope. What, why? What's the point? I'm not just sitting here just because I like the sound of somebody's voice, right? So as you're, as you're listening, you should be listening for what is it that Christ is telling me to do? Yeah. Yeah, Or think, or... Yeah, and I think to go back to uh, what we talked about earlier, the, the, um, I think the primary goal, the overarching goal of the sermon is to provoke faith in the listener uh, and then trust through that. There can be some practical application, right? So if you're talking about idolatry, there's, there is value in pointing out some of the areas that uh, your congregation or that this particular church, uh, some areas they might be specifically susceptible to idolatry. That's good to know that and to point those things out. But at the end of the day, my primary goal is how does this sermon or this message, this theological truth provoke faith, which will then turn into something and allow the Holy Spirit to have his, his part of that. Um, so because otherwise you get the cart before the horse. What did you call that? Uh, therapeutic moralism. Yeah. Humanistic therapeutic yeah. moralism. Yeah. So you don't want to, and that's what the world wants, right? Mm-hmm. It's give me some sort of therapy for my problem uh, and tell me what I need to do to rectify my problem and I'm good, mm-hmm. right? So I lost my job. Tell me what I need to do, right? Tell me tell me the checklist I need to go through to feel better about losing my job. If that doesn't, if that's not coming from the, the point of a provoked faith, but it's just, well, you lost your job, but um, here's how you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go apply for three more jobs and you'll find a job and everything will work out because Jesus loves you. In five easy steps. In five easy steps, yeah. So that that's not provoking faith. Provoking faith is God works out all things for good. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that? Right? And now you can leave with your faith filled up, I think, is what Paul would want us to do. Yeah. Yeah, and one of my uh, our, our, our professors here... Uh, when we were talking about one of the uh, sermons or teachings we were listening to, he was just reminding us uh, and giving the critique to the person that we need to remember that we have a message to deliver to the people and that it's important and that they really need to hear it. 
And just keeping that in mind for, for whatever person in the audience is listening to this, the small group leader or pastor, that uh, there is a need that the congregation needs met that we are uh, laboring over in the text. And it's important that we realize uh, what the job is that we're doing and how important that it is. Yeah, and I think also the um, something for preachers to keep in mind as we're reading through Scripture, even if it's not for a sermon, uh, is when there is instruction, uh, what about the Christian that fails at disobedience, right? So if it's so, just take like the supreme command, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I can preach that, and I can I can desire to provoke faith in the listener that I want you to des- to grow in your love for God. I, I want that. But I also have to keep in mind, but what happens when you don't for the believer, right? Because if I preach that as you need to be doing this and it becomes this therapeutic thing that if you're doing this, then things will work out well for you. If that's it, or you will have a better life or whatever it is. When that Christian goes home and they realize I don't love God like I should, or I failed in this instruction that I received today, that's where the element of the gospel comes in. And that's the other, the other purpose of a sermon is provoke faith coupled with the reality that Christ has already perfectly done what I'm, ex- what I'm exhorting you to do today, right? So th- if those two things are missing, either one of those, uh, it immediately becomes moralistic mm. and, and, and condemning. I was searching to try to find this quote, but I read it recently, and I can't remember if it was Christ-centered preaching or T. David Gordy's book, Why Johnny Can't Preach, which he's not a sponsor either, but you should read it. It's we have no sponsor. I thought your kids wrote that book. Well, my kids wrote one version. Don't tell him, though. It's probably copyrighted. <laughs> anyway. But I thought it was quote, the updated version. The quote had something to do with. I couldn't find it exactly. But the gospel is the winds in the sails of Christian obedience. Mm. I thought that was really helpful. Wow, that's good. Yeah. I don't remember who. I'm, I'm pretty sure they were quoting someone else, but I thought it was very helpful in terms of thinking about preaching <clears throat> obedience. Yeah, like a passage good. that says, obey me by God. Mm-hmm. By God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's paraphrasing. So good stuff. Yeah. So we want to thank you guys for coming and joining us today where we covered the four stages. Again, all 10 stages are going to be in the podcast notes if you want to see them, but for maybe the person who's driving, uh, stage four, submitting your exegetical idea to three developmental questions. What does it mean? Uh, is it true? What difference does it make? Stage five, in light of the audience's knowledge and experience, think through your exegetical idea and state it in the most exact memorable statement possible. And then stage six that we covered last year, determine the purpose of this sermon. You guys can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and email, which I'm going to kick this one off to Josh. I don't know. Look us up on Facebook, (laughs) Practically Theologians. Twitter, at P Theologians, which, I mean, the name's unfortunate, but that's okay. Email is podcast at practicallytheologians.org, and we'd love to hear your questions or comments. And the website where you can find all of our episodes, if you don't use iTunes, is practicallytheologians.org. And please do rate and review us on iTunes, especially if your review's a good one. We would appreciate it. (laughs) Actually, you know what? If it was a bad one, too, we would also appreciate that. We'd like to know how we can do better, but if you could just email us and let us know, that'd be great. (laughs) Please. Please do not let Apple know. All right. Thank you for listening. All right. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye.